Thank you, Jessica. Appreciate that. Well, good morning. Good morning. Have you noticed there's a little change in the weather? A little cooler at night? That's a good thing, isn't it? Amen for that. Well, we are in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's Passion. And we are in chapter 26, and it's a long chapter, but we will complete it today as we look at the final days of Jesus Christ. Matthew tracks his story. This is a historical account from Matthew's perspective, inspired by the Holy Spirit, of the final days of Christ. And he doesn't just track Jesus' words, that we hang on Jesus' words, but he also tracks what's going on around Jesus and the other uh, characters in the story of redemption that come in and out of this plan. We have looked at in this chapter, just this one chapter, I think it's 75 verses, if I remember correctly, the Lord Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper as he gathered his disciples around in the upper room and explained the blood and the body and the covenant. It was also in this chapter where he predicted Judas's betrayal. And we saw that played out when Judas came to the garden and kissed Jesus to identify him to the guards. Last week, we looked at the agony of the cup that Jesus suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he got with his father and was brought to the mouth of the furnace, if you will. And Jesus has also predicted Peter's denial. And we want to pick it up here. So he has been identified in the garden. He has been taken captive illegally, by the way. We'll look more at that in the chapter to come. Uh, the Pharisees certainly have a beef against Jesus. So they come, they get him, they drag him away. At night, we pick up in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. And then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? 
Well, it's no surprise to you that it has come to this. You have followed Matthew's account. And one of the things that grew in Matthew's account of Jesus's life was the animosity of the Jewish leaders towards Jesus. You kind of saw it go from not being real crazy about this guy. There was some curiosity at first, and then it grew into a full-fledged murderous hate. They are jealous of him. They are envious of him to the point. They let it get to the point where now they simply want him gone. And so they have been plotting all along, trying to figure out how can we get rid of this guy. And of course, wanting to uh, display themselves as righteous, they try to keep all of their evil under the radar. They worked hard. They sent their best people, scribes and Pharisees, lawyers, to try to word things in such a way that Jesus would condemn himself by his own words. That did not happen. Usually they were sent home with their tail between their legs. And now it has come to this. They illegally take him captive at night and they have a trial. They basically judge him as worthy of death. Now, they want to have witnesses. There's no true accusation against Christ. And so they come up with false testimonies, but none of them are really believable. And so finally, it just comes down to a showdown, if you will. And it's between the chief priest, greatest authority over Israel and God, the son who put him in that place of authority. And the the priest just can't stand it anymore. He wants to know, are you or are you not the Christ? What do you claim for yourself? I adjure you by the living God. And Jesus says in verse 64, you have said so. What does that mean? Is that a yes or a no? So are you claiming to be the Messiah or are you not? It's not so clear here. Now, Mark's account of this event, he puts it like this in chapter 14 of his gospel, verse 62. When the chief priest asked this question, Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. But here he says, you have said so. So is that a yes or a no? We've seen this this term, this phraseology before. Jesus used it in the upper room when he predicted that one of you will betray me. There they are, a nice cozy room, excited about celebrating the Passover, which became the Lord's Supper. And he says, one of you will be betrayed me. And they all kind of look at themselves and say, well, is it I? And then Judas says, is it I? And Jesus uses that, that pointed phrase, you have said so. And we learn that that phrase, it's a, it's a crafty phrase. It's packed with meaning. Because what it means is, in a sense, you know in your heart or To put it frankly, Judas, you and I both know the answer to that question. So what's happening out here in the surface is words that make it look like I'm kind of wondering about this. I'm not so sure about this. So there's this appearance. But deep down in your heart, you already know the answer to your own question. 
So that's the kind of phrase this is. That's how Jesus uses it. Because there are things that people know and we don't always want to admit or we like to act up here like we don't know and, and use our words to portray that. We, we play games and our own hearts play games with us. Now, I don't know. I can't say with confidence to what extent uh, Judas understood all of this, his own betrayal. You know, sometimes like our mind is made up 95 percent of the time, but we even wonder to ourselves, wow, can I really do this? Can I go through with this betrayal? You know, maybe Judas was thinking that. But the point is, of course, Jesus knows our hearts better than we do. And, and Jesus is revealing to Judas. You know the answer to that question already. I don't know what kind of doubt may be up here in the, in the upper 1%, but you're all, things are already in motion. Your, your heart is betraying your words. You're already headed in this direction. Things are taking place. Our hearts play games with us. They send us mixed messages. Our hearts have evil in them. They're sneaky like that. And sometimes evil hides in our own hearts and our own minds can be thinking we're pretty good. And yet, while we simultaneously or concurrently are plotting evil. That's why when I hear the, the worldly or today's mantra, the cultural mantra of follow your heart. It just makes me squirm. Because I know my heart and I followed my heart. It's hit or miss. It's hit or miss, but there's this, this lofty idea out there that says, look, if you could just get rid of all of these voices and all of these distractions, the, the voices of the world, what your parents are trying to force you into, what your peers are saying to you, all these voices, and if you could just get quiet enough to listen to your inner self and your inner heart, Packed in that pure place, that cure where there's no distractions is your destiny. And if you can just quiet yourself and hear what your heart is speaking to you, it will unlock the doors of liberation. And finally, you will discover yourself and be set free from all the constraints that culture and whatever voices are putting on it. And that's pretty, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And a lot of people are looking deep and searching in their hearts for that promise of man. Maybe deep down in there I can find what I've always been looking for. I can find myself because I'm not always sure who I am. But we know, Judas knows, we'll see Peter understands. It's not that simple, is it? It's not that simple because the biblical teaching says, well, yeah, there's good in there and you've got desires and emotions and ambitions. But there's also latent evil in there that you were born with an evil nature, a sinful nature. And so along with the desires to do good and to be good and to have fun, experience joy are evil desires. And your own heart can lead you astray. Your own heart. If you follow your own heart, it could be your worst enemy. It may be that the very voices that you're trying to block out of your head are the voices of sanity that you need to hear. And we know, of course, because of that sin nature, what we need most is that which is reliable, which is God's truth and God's truth alone. 
And what he does is teaches, yeah, you've got two voices in here that you got your natures. And so you study my word. And what that does is teach you discernment so that when ideas pop up and you think, man, that's great. I'm going to follow that. Don't wait a minute. How's that line up to God's word? No, that's a path to destruction. Not going to follow that. And so through the Holy Spirit, he grows us as we as we spend time with him in fellowship and through the word and prayer and with our brothers and sisters that also know his word and have experiences that they can share. And it, it hones our ability to do God's will. And of course, we know Scripture says that it's God's will that liberates you. It's finding God that liberates you because you really can't know yourself until you have found God. So we have to be careful about that. And it's a packed phrase that Jesus says. You have said so. And when I was studying this, I thought to myself of a, a very relevant cultural issue because there are things in our lives in our day right now where our mouths and some of our actions out here betray what we really know deep down is true. And not to bring up a controversy, but the obvious cultural issue of our day that came to my mind when I thought about this was the abortion issue. Because what we have is contradictory things. We have contradictory laws. Uh, we, we say one thing with this law, but we want this to be true. So we want protection. There's something about our society where deep down we know that unborn babies are vulnerable. And they need to be protected. And so there are laws against bringing any harm to unborn babies. But there are also laws against uh, a, a person's choice to terminate, if they so choose to terminate that viable uh, life. So it's, we, we live in days of contradiction. So it's kind of like we, we want this. We want our personal freedom. We believe in choice and freedoms and so forth. But we also, but there's something in us that says, but... Little baby. Just this year, <clears throat> I read an article that actually made headlines. It wasn't real big in the headlines, but it was in June. And it was a case in Alabama. And what had happened was two ladies, they got in a fight. They got in a very heated fight. And one of them provoked the other. <clears throat> They're in this fight. One of the ladies is five months pregnant, if I remember correctly. And this fight got so heated that one of the people, uh, one of these ladies thought, I need to defend myself, pulls out a gun and shoots the lady. She shoots the lady that's five months pregnant and kills the baby. The mother lives. The thing that's fascinating about this case in Alabama is that one of these ladies uh, got charged for manslaughter. The lady that got charged with manslaughter was the mother. Not the person that pulled the trigger. Now here's why. Because when the judges looked at all the evidence, they found that it was the mother who did all the provoking, the mother that was the most violent, and... Apparently, the other person was acting in defense. I'm not even sure if any charges were filed on that end. But what happened was the court decided you are a mother. And that baby depends on you to be kept safe. 
And you put yourself and you put that baby blatantly in harm's way. Almost begging to be hurt. And that baby was shot. And you are held responsible for your baby's life. Now, this is, in a, yes, the United States. Do you see the mixed message that we have to wrestle with as citizens? Again, I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I'm not trying to rile emotion. I'm just trying to give an example of sometimes deep down in here, we know things. And up here, we act like we don't know. So that means that if, if this if there's a there are laws that say I cannot bring harm to a lady if she's expecting, obviously, because she's fragile. The life in her is fragile. So if I get impatient and I'm running down the sidewalk to get to church and push a lady out of my way and she falls down the steps and the baby's life is taken, I'm going to face some serious charges in, in jail time. That same person can if. That same person, let's just say, let me modify my story and make it more interesting. Okay, I'm in the city and I'm in a big hurry and I push this person and she falls down the steps. Well, I could get in big trouble. Now, that same individual could have been on her way to an abortion clinic. With the same outcome. But she has the freedom to. So there are things in us. We're out here. It's like, well, we want it to be true. We think. We wrestle with it, but our own hearts betray us and plays and play games. And I think this is a clear example of one of those things that our society. And that's why, uh, by God's grace, I think public opinion, not just Christians, but public opinion is swaying to, well, you know what? I kind of starting to have second thoughts about this abortion issue. Babies are vulnerable and they do need protection. That's kind of the way things are designed. I think this is one of those issues where if we just wanted clarity and Jesus was right here and we say, uh, is abortion wrong? You have said so. It's packed with meaning. So they know, in a sense, it goes along with what the Apostle Paul teaches in Romans, where the truth is out there, guys, but you suppress it. You don't want it. Now, you, you can't make it disappear because God is eternal and God is truth. But you push it down, you do the best you can to suppress it. But a day of reckoning is coming. And so Jesus, in essence, in his answer says, yeah, for now, you have said so. So, you know, deep down what's really going on here. And they do. Maybe I, again, I don't know the degree to it. They know they're wrong. Why would they do this at night? And pretty soon you will see an absolute admission of guilt. In chapter 27. No question asked. But he says, what you, what you know and what you see even right here, right now, it's not going to be like this much longer. Because he says, you will see. What you suppress, what you choose to be blind to, you will see. Because you will see the Son of Man come on the clouds of heaven. And when he says that phrase, I know it got their attention because he is quoting out of um, Daniel chapter seven. They would understand this because these words brought these were the hope of Israel. They were longing for this day. And Jesus says, I quote out of Daniel seven, I saw in night visions 
And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom. One that will not be destroyed. So Jesus is making the connection. You know the day you long for, you know the Son of Man that will come and He's approved by the Ancient of Days. He, cre- he has a kingdom and he, everyone will be gathered to Him. That's me. So you see me right now in weakness and like you are in a position of power. It's not going to be like that forever. And then as He continues to quote that passage... Who is seated at the right hand of the Father? This Son that's going to come and establish His kingdom. So in essence, He's saying, okay, so right now you are judging me. You're looking at me. Of course, ignoring the facts, but you're looking at me. You're the judge. You've uttered your sentence. He's guilty. Put him to death. But I will be seated at the right hand of the Father. That is the absolute supreme place of judgment. And the day will come when I will sit in judgment over you. And I have all power. So he is, he is taking that prophecy and he is applying it to them in, in the hopes, perhaps, that their eyes would be open to, I am that man. And I will gather all nations, all people, including you elders and chief priests, and you will stand before me and you will be judged by me. Now that prophecy extends to us in this place today. No matter what we think about Christ or how we see life going down or who's innocent and who's guilty, the day will come where you will see because this will be fulfilled. And we will all be gathered, people of every tongue and every tribe. We will be gathered before this king and his eternal kingdom and he will judge us. I hope and pray that you are prepared for that judgment this morning because you have placed your faith in the atoning work of Christ. So the chief priests, the Jewish rulers, blatantly deny Christ's deity. Now we have another passage to look at, and that is Jesus' own disciple, Peter of all people, who deny him. Verses 69 through 75. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, "Uh, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while. The bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Expletive, expletive, expletive. And immediately the rooster crowed. Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Before The rooster crows. You will deny me three times. 
And he went out and wept bitterly. Well, we knew it would happen. Jesus predicted it. We just didn't know exactly how it would happen. Circumstances changed. It wasn't so long ago that any mention of Peter denying Jesus, Peter emphatically stamped his feet and said, in so many words, not on or over my dead body will I betray you. I would rather die. And I will die if it comes down to the decision of, do I stick with you or do I betray you? And in this passage, Jesus, uh, Peter finds himself denying that he knows him, denying that he ever hung around with him, denying that he ever knew him at all. And for special effect, to make it sound convincing, curse words and oaths. I mean, everything that you can pull from your arsenal to make people believe you, he pulls from his arsenal. He says, I do not know him. Nah. Peter's doing all the things that Jesus has been teaching him all along the way about words and the importance of words and about truth. Because, yes, just like we struggle in our culture, they struggled in their culture about saying what they mean and, and, and the degrees of lies and the degrees of promises that we give. And Jesus just says, just be truthful. Say what you mean, mean what you say, yet your yes, yes, your let your yes be yes, your no be no. Don't complicate things and don't give half truths and so forth. That's that's part of the kingdom. That's how it's to establish established on the rock and on integrity. Keeping your promises. You make an oath, keep it. So there's Peter, and he was taken. Subtly and right along the flow and the path of evil, wasn't he? Because you have the first little test. I think I recognize you. No. So he's, he's making evil choices now and he's lying. And then again, another accusation. And each time he goes down the path of evil further, he lies even more emphatically. And it's almost, to me, like... When the rooster crows, he almost, it wakes him out of this evil stupor, if you will. That noise, that sound. And it says he, he went out and he, he wept. And he didn't just like sniffle and dabble the tears on his eyes. He wept bitterly. And that word means there's a mental agony. He is agonizing over this. He is what we might call in the South, tore, slam up about it. This is hard, hard, hard stuff for him. Now, he didn't cry a tear. When Jesus told him, what, three times in the garden? Would you stay awake and pray? I mean, something's important. I've never even asked you to do anything. Something important is happening over here. Would you just stay awake, my friend? And he didn't do it. And he didn't cry over that. And he didn't cry when Jesus said, put your sword back. 
not how the kingdom works. He didn't, wasn't all broken up. Why is he so broken up about this? I mean, this particular thing, this big, strong, impulsive guy who speaks for the group, and he's courageous. Got to hand it to him. What happened? I believe that he is so torn up because he broke his word. But what that means and what that does to a person. If you really think about the magnitude or the consequences of what does it mean when we say something so emphatically and then we go against it, not just how it brings pain to the other people, but what does that do to our own hearts? If we're honest, it sends us into a tailspin. Now, Jesus has taught about standing by your pledges, keeping your word. And it's by standing by your word, really, that determines the kind of people that we are. And I think Peter was shaken because now he is fragmented and he is wondering, what kind of man am I? What kind of, who am I? Because in verse 35, I believe it was, he really genuinely said, I would rather give my life, not preserve it. I will give it on behalf of you, Jesus. And then a few days later, here he is, and he is cursing. And he is emphatically and emotionally saying, I will not give my life for this man. Rather, I want my freedom to live. Now, he has to live with this duplicity. And it's shaking him. Who is he? Which guy is he? Is he the guy that keeps his word or is he the guy that breaks his word? Because that means something for the rest of his life as it means something for the rest of our lives. It fragments us. And in essence, the Bible teaches us we know who we are by the promises we keep, right? We, it, it's the fake stuff. It's the hypocrisy. It's the acting. It's the posing that gets us in trouble. And not only can people not know, if you're going to present yourself to me and lie about yourself. I don't really know you, right? We lie to ourselves. Do we really know ourselves? This is deep stuff. And I think Peter gets it because truth is that important. If we're not honest with ourselves, it can send us off the deep end. And there are a lot of people that struggle in our culture that really don't know themselves. And, it, and, and they're striving and scratching to figure out, who am I? What path do I take? What, who do I believe? What do I believe about myself? Truth is important. Not so much in our culture today. We like to think it's not important. And you know about relativism and then you know... Well, from that, that morphed into now what we deal with is, well, truth is what I feel it is. And it's just truth to me, and it doesn't even have to be truth to you. My opinions and my feelings are what it are the most important thing. So if I feel like this, 
then that's truth for me. And that's not going to work. Because, again, our feelings change. They're not consistent. And you have people making big life decisions based on a feeling. That, what's the, what's the phrase? What was I thinking? I'm talking really serious stuff here where they alter their bodies they, or they, they alter their personalities and so forth. And then they, they think, oh, well, that was just kind of like a fad. Now what do I do? See, truth matters and, and who we are matters and what we tell to one another and how we act and how we keep the promises. He made this promise not just to Jesus, but to himself. What kind of people are we if we say, well, I'm determined to do this and I'm committed to that. And then over a little circumstance changes or some pressure comes and then we're a different person. Who are we? Our world tells us you can only count on yourself. Don't listen to those other voices. I can only count on me. And I wonder what Peter would think about that. The Bible teaches that you're not your feelings. That you're creating an image of God and what makes you the person that you are is your commitments. You can say one thing, but if you do another, you're not that person that you're trying to like to think you would be. It's integrity. It's that wholeness being the same person through and through. That makes you consistent. You're not your feelings. You are your commitments. So Peter wanted to be a man true to his word. He wanted, you know, he even said, uh, by the way, Jesus, if all these other guys fall away. Not me. See the platform he put him. See how convinced he was. I'll go. I'll go beyond anybody. So he's shaken. Then the rooster crowed. Never thought I would thank God for the crow of a rooster. God is so good that he'll use sounds. He'll use happenings. He'll use odors. He'll, he'll sense. He'll use a pat on the back, a hug, a sensation to wake us up out of our evil stupor into a life of grace. That rooster, who knows how long Peter would have gone down that path had that rooster not crowed. But it was tied to the grace of God. It was tied to the love of Christ and to the truth of Christ. I thank God for crowing roosters. And the ones in my life where God brings those moments where I'm just happy on my own way and sinning. And mm, this happens or that happens. Could have been a radio broadcast or a song or just a cry of a baby or, or a breeze or shade. These things that God brings into our lives to stop us and to shepherd us back on the path to help us stop following these wrong things. When you can say, I know who I am because I made a commitment and it's not going to change with impulses or hormonal outbursts or circumstances. Uh, it, it's not going to change. That's how I know who I am. Because that's determined and it's dependable. It's a commitment. And when we can get to that place then we have found ourselves. 
This isn't just Bible stuff. There's a philosopher by the name of Hannah Arndt, written uh, numerous books, by the way, not a Christian, written numerous books on people. And because there's a big struggle today on identity, people don't know who they are. They don't know what direction to go. Am I male or female? Am I human? Am I animal? What am I? And so she wrote this book. In this book, The Human Condition, she writes, Without being bound to the fulfillment of promises, we would never be able to keep our identities. We would be condemned to wander helplessly and without direction in the darkness of each man's lonely heart. Caught in its contradictions and equivocalities. She gets it. She understands the human condition and the human heart. We can't trust ourselves. And the only way we can trust ourselves is by keeping, of course, I would say, find truth, the truth of who you are and what life is about, and stick to it. That's how we find ourselves. And how do we fix our, fragment, our fragmented lives but pick up the pieces and keep our word? Now, I wasn't going to share this because it's kind of a spoiler, but then I realized it's not in this gospel. Um, but what happens to Peter after he cries bitterly is, does he live happily after ever? What does he do? Just very, very briefly, when Jesus dies, he rises from the dead and then he comes back and he visits his disciples. There's this really neat happening uh, and dialogue that takes place between Jesus and Peter. Now, if you're Peter, and the last time you saw, well, G Jesus saw you, or the terms were that you just totally lied and broke your word against him, just as he said, you might be feeling a little insecure. I mean, what is, he's come back now. What is this going to look like? Where's my standing? What does he even think of me? So they have this real neat dialogue over breakfast. You know, it's, it's the story where Jesus tells them where to cast their net and they weren't catching anything all night and now they can't even... They don't know what are we going to do with all this sushi. We don't know what we're going to do with it. So, and then he has this dialogue with, Peter, do you love me? How many times does he ask that question? How many times did Peter deny Christ? And Peter's getting a little upset because like, Lord, you have to ask me again? You got to ask me again? I just gave you an answer. I just spoke. It's like this, and then he says, feed my sheep. And that, to me, that's restoration. Now, does, does Peter know where he stands? Peter, I've got a job for you to do. You're restored. Now, now keep your word. Be the man through the power of Christ. Lead my people. Feed my sheep. It's a beautiful, beautiful moment. Now, I don't want us, as we, as we close, I don't want us to make the mistake of thinking, well... I'm just going to grit my teeth and be a man of my word and try to do it all on our own power because then we, we defeat the purpose of the cross. The how do we find ourselves? Who do we really rely on? What truth do we build our lives on? Not our own hearts, not our own ability to, start, to discern, or not even our own ability to keep our word. Our lives are built on Christ, who Christ is, what Christ promises he will do in us. Now, what that does is frees us to be honest with ourselves. It frees us to say, you know what? I blew it. 
Back in verse 35, here's who I was, this tough guy. Nobody would break. And over in this verse, I'm this weak guy who just bowed at the servant girl's accusations. And the, and the truth of Christ and the promise of Christ, this wealth of grace enables us to be ourselves, which includes admitting our sin before him and repenting and being restored. It's not building your life on your own willpower. We are trusting in Christ and Christ alone for our present and our future. So I pray that this passage encourages us like Peter to look to him, to come to him for mercy and forgiveness for the many times that we have blown it and find the grace of Christ so that we are prepared for that day when the Son of Man comes on the clouds with all power and all authority. May God bless the preaching of his word.